It is certainly good to be back before you again tonight, and what a joy it is always to be not only in the presence of God, but in the presence of His people. And I'm certainly grateful for the Oak Grove congregation and for uh, those who've come from other congregations in the area, and I am certainly honored tonight that you come to hear the gospel story. There is no greater story in all the world than truly the message of Jesus Christ. In fact, we sing a song called, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Right on my heart, every word. And truly, when we write that message on our heart and we write it on the hearts of our children and our neighbors and friends, brethren, it will make a difference. Because it is a story of love, a story of goodness, a story about salvation. And that's what our world desperately needs, especially now. But they need to know about Jesus. We, of course, are going to preach the necessity of one uh, obeying the gospel, of being baptized for the remission of their sins, of experiencing, as it were, the new birth, being born of water and of the Spirit. But that message of salvation must be preceded by a message about Jesus. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be condemned. Now that's at the end of the Gospel of Mark. But the Gospel of Mark begins with that this is in fact a record of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Mark goes through and tells us all about who Jesus is and what he did. And so by the time, you see, someone can get to the end of Mark, then I believe because of what they've heard about Jesus, they're going to step out in faith and obey the command of God and be baptized. Tonight we want to tell the story of Jesus, the greatest story ever told, but we want to talk about it from a sort of pictorial perspective. We want to walk where Jesus walked. Now, don't get excited. There are two parts to this particular lesson. I'm not going to tell the whole story tonight, part one and part two. But tonight we do want to spend a little time talking about those early years in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we do, remind you and remind all of our friends who might have the opportunity to study with us or to maybe watch this video a little bit later that these are real places, that the story of the Bible took place in a real geographical setting in a real historical context. I mentioned actually this to a couple of you this week that a few years ago I was uh, teaching a group of middle school students out in West Texas. There was a school out there that uh, was started by members of the church, and a lot of the, the kids in this particular class that I was teaching this one lesson to uh, were not associated with the church. And so I presented with them some of the things that we're going to be seeing tonight and tomorrow night, and the teacher had them write an impression paper about what they had seen. And they sent it to me in the mail. I got it back when I went back home, and, and I got it in the mail. All these nice, you know, page or two uh, impression papers written by these middle school students. And it was such a delight to read that. But what amazed me is that about half of the kids writing that impression paper said, we had no idea that there was a literal place called Jerusalem or Bethlehem. They just saw the Bible as a book of do's and don'ts, and this is what you need to do, and this is how you need to live. They had no idea that it was connected to a real place. So we've got a lot of work to do out there. And a part of what we're trying to do tonight in this gospel meeting is remind people of the validity of that story, the reliability of Scripture. So... As we tell the greatest story ever told and we walk where Jesus walked, I actually want to begin with the Sea of Galilee and in particular a passage in Psalm chapter 19. I'm sure you know it. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day and night unto night, this particular message goes out throughout the world and and there is no language where it is not understood or heard and truly the creation of the world is sort of God's braille to a blind 
humanity. God is crying out from the natural world saying, I am here, I exist. And when we look at the natural world, isn't it beautiful? It truly is. God's creative hand is seen in the trees and in the lakes and even in our own human bodies. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But while I truly marvel at the fact that there is a creator and that you can't get designed without a designer, I cannot know anything about God and his love for me and his will for me by looking at the natural world. Truly, I can know that he is great and powerful in that sense and a a beautiful artist, but I can't know what he wants me to do to be saved. I can't know anything about the church or what it really means to follow God. And so how do I do that? Well, I need to look at Jesus. I need to think about the fact that when God sent his son, Jesus, he did so, notice, to explain him. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. Now the word declared there comes from a Greek word that we get our word exegesis from. Exegesis is the process that students of the Bible go through in leading out the meaning of a particular passage. That process of thinking about the context and the meaning of words and and looking at uh, the relationship of those words and thinking about the historical context and and the, the larger literary context and so forth is this process known as exegesis. And when we go through that process, we are explaining to people what that passage means. Jesus, according to this passage, is the exegete of God. He came to fully explain God to us. I want to know something about God? Then look at Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus said to Thomas and to Philip when he told them that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And and they asked and he said, well, show us the Father and it will satisfy us. And Jesus said, anyone that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. That doesn't mean that He didn't exist somehow uh, before God the Father, but rather it's a term of endearment, a term of interrelationship. So Jesus as the Son of God explaining God to us is pretty exciting. When you read the story of the Bible, and particularly the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you are doing is getting a sort of window into the throne of God. You are being allowed to see the very nature of God, and it is truly marvelous. Because as we're going to see tonight, this Jesus is not only a good and compassionate man, but he is powerful and a man who can forgive sin and a man who tells us more about the eternal home of the soul. So what about the story of Jesus tonight as we think about the message that he came to bring to us about God? John 1, 1, verses 1 through 3 says that in the beginning was the Word. It was with God. The Word was God. That same was in the beginning with God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John in his letter then says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, talking about Jesus, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare it unto you. So in other words, when you read this book, and when I share with you some things from this book tonight, you are getting an eyewitness account of people that were there, who saw it with their own eyes, who actually touched Jesus. That's pretty awesome to me. Again, sometimes we just see this as sort of information, black ink on a page. Some people think, okay, it's just a good book. It's more than just a good book. It is the Word of God. 
And it is the Word of God, the Holy Spirit inspiring men of God who were with Jesus, who were eyewitnesses, or who knew many people who had seen Him as well. And so tonight, we want to tell this story about Jesus. And as we do, let's talk about His birth. Just a few things about His birth. The birth of Jesus is recorded in Matthew chapters 1 through 2, and really in the first couple of chapters of Luke with the announcement and the arrival of Jesus in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a real place. You can visit it today, and you can see, uh, I think I have an arrow, there we go, located here just a little bit south of Jerusalem, about five miles. And uh, today Jerusalem is actually near and close to uh, a bunch of field area. There's actually a fence there today that separates uh, the West Bank territory from uh, Israel proper. Uh, you can barely see that, but you can visit uh, Bethlehem, a thriving city um, that uh, has some countryside associated with it, and also a church building. It's one of the oldest church buildings, or is the oldest church building in all of Israel. It dates back to about the 4th century uh, A.D., and uh, this particular church building here is called the Church of the Nativity because there is a tradition that says that Jesus was born in a cave and later on this cave was identified by a guy by the name of Jerome and others who, who went to uh, go there when he uh, actually translated the Latin uh, Vulgate uh, or the uh, scripture into Latin called the Vulgate. And uh, so this is kind of where he lived, and eventually they build this church building over it, believing this to be the site. And if you go inside the church building today there, uh, quite ornately decorated and underneath sort of the, the rostrum area or the area where the lectern is, you can go down below it, and there is the remains of a cave, and they've built this sort of shrine over it. It looks like a fireplace, doesn't it? But people actually go over there, and they, they get down on the floor, and there's a, there's a star uh, in, over that marble area, and you reach your hand down in there, and I did it just to see what was in there, and, uh, and you could feel a rock. I, I cleaned my hands afterwards because a bunch of people have been going down there and touching that rock. And they said, well, it's holy. I'm going to say it doesn't. It's not holy. Uh, it is a traditional site. I really don't think that's where Jesus was actually born. We know he was born in Bethlehem. We don't know the exact location, but what we do know about the birth of Jesus uh, is that he did come to a town that was crowded with people during a worldwide census. The Bible clearly pinpoints the uh, history involved in when his birth took place. We know that Caesar Augustus had uh, commanded that this census, this counting of people be taking place and people had to return back to their homeland. So a lot of people were going back to Bethlehem to be counted. And when they get there, they can't find any place to stay and uh, evidently going to the, a family home. So they, they uh, ended up probably staying in the lower basement area, or maybe kind of like where Jack and Kathy have put me this week in the basement of their house. Uh, no, it's been great. But uh, houses from the first century period uh, were built usually with two or three stories. Animals were kept on the lowest floor, and then maybe uh, the family would stay on the next floor, and then they might have a guest room or even on top of the house. And a number of these homes have been uh, dug up by archaeologists and have been reconstructed. And then based on other uh, historical writings, they, they have some idea of, of what a, a Palestinian home looked like during this particular period. So it could be that, that Jesus was born in just the lower level uh, of a home belonging to one of his family members. And you can actually see this old, old picture here of, of individuals actually taking up residence. Uh, in an area where animals were housed in the lower sections of one of these older homes. Um, archaeologists, and I showed this to you the other day, have actually discovered uh, stone mangers. So some of the so-called nativity scenes that we often see today around Christmas time uh, have him in these sort of wooden-looking mangers, and a lot of that picture uh, isn't accurate in the so-called nativity scene. Uh, but that's another story. We'll talk about some more of that in just a moment. But um, these were really more the type of mangers that existed 
uh, in the ancient world. And it just happens to be, as I mentioned the other day, you know, the right size for a little kid uh, to be placed in. So maybe that's what Jesus was placed in when he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and, and laid in a manger. We also know that according to the Bible in Luke 2 that there were shepherds in the field. And uh, they were out grazing and uh, it was out there when they actually got uh, uh, received the word about the birth of Christ. You know that uh, shepherds, um, one of the arguments we used about why Jesus couldn't be have been born on December the 25th is because shepherds wouldn't have been in the field uh, grazing their sheep. We don't know when Jesus was born. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I hate to tell us, um, this picture was taken actually during December when shepherds were out in the field uh, grazing their sheep. Sometimes we pass along some myths and things that uh, we need to be careful about. But nevertheless, we don't know when the birth of Christ was, but we do know that just like today, back then, Shepherds were out there in the fields with their sheep, and there were wise men that came from afar. We don't know how many there were. This artist decided that there were three, probably based on the fact that there were three gifts. But what is most important about this scene is that they recognized the special day of this, uh, you know, what was happening with the coming of the Savior and they worshiped, and they brought gifts, and they were first encountering a man by the name of Herod the Great. The Bible mentions that when these wise men came to him and were inquiring about where this Savior was born, this King of the Jews, uh, they probably pretty well knew that uh, he had some ill purposes in mind, and so they didn't return back the same way that they came, but the Bible mentions that Herod had babies killed. And critics of the Bible said, well, uh, that just doesn't make sense, that some Jew would kill his own people, even though Herod was really only uh, a so-called half-Jew. Uh, he was uh, an Idumean. But, uh, you know, that, this just doesn't really fit what they said. But if you read what Josephus says about Herod, you know that he was an, uh, an ego uh, maniac, and he was also uh, very, very fearful and, uh, uh, you know, was afraid that someone was going to take his life, paranoid. But not only that, we know that he really existed because he did build large uh, places for himself to go and, and to relax and to, to have a fortress. Here is one that's known as the Herodium. And we also know because of a discovery made there about 15 years ago, that this is actually or was the burial site of King Herod. He was a real person of history, just like the Bible says. He was, in fact, the person placed over authority of the Jews by the Roman Empire. He was a king of that area. And he had this elaborate city built and a, a huge mausoleum where he was going to be buried. And guess what? On top of this what looks like a volcano, but it's not, he actually had a mountain moved over to a new location, so it is possible to move mountains. But, uh, and so he had a, he had a mountain moved uh, so that his city would be in view of Jerusalem from people that were far away could look out there and see that little hilltop. And you can see it today. And he wanted to be remembered, you know, for out time. I think it's interesting. Most people don't really know much about Herod the Great, but they certainly remember Jesus Christ. And yet, uh, as this particular... A Herodium was built in his palace-like structure. What was found inside by Ehud Netzer was Herod's sarcophagus. And guess how he found it? Completely in pieces. Utterly destroyed. Somebody was not happy about King Herod. And I can just imagine the Jews being upset, frustrated and saddened over what he had done in killing all of those baby boys uh, in Bethlehem. So Herod was a real person of history. The Bible is right. It speaks about some of the terrible things that he did. It's consistent with what we find in the archaeological record. Well, what about his infancy? After his birth, is there any information that would help us to better understand those first few years, our first year of his life and things that occurred? Well, we do know that eventually his parents went back to Nazareth after having come back from Egypt after King Herod had died. 
and Nazareth is a, a real place. There's actually a, a body of Christians that meet there. It's the only congregation of the Lord's body in the entirety of Israel today. But uh, in Nazareth, uh, there is a church building that's called the Church of the Annunciation. And again, just another element of tradition, probably not the case, but there could be something to it. There's a spring uh, in this area, and water flows to another church building, but uh, there's a tradition that says this is where uh, Mary received the news about the announcement of Jesus' birth. But uh, it's the largest church building in, in all of Israel today. But, uh, but what is important is that this area exists. There is a, a large mountain that some people here consider to be um, the mountain where Jesus was taken and his, uh, you know, his uh, enemies were going to throw him off the side of this large cliff. I don't personally think this is the one, but I can't imagine Jesus going up there looking out over the Jezreel Valley. But what we do know about what the Bible says about Jesus is that he was the son of a carpenter. Now, it could be that Jesus worked with wood, I have no doubt that that was being utilized in some portions of a house like we're going to see in just a moment. But the primary building materials during the time of Jesus were stone. The limestone rock and also the basalt rock that was quarried out of the hillside in the northern territory where Jesus lived. And we know that again because of these buildings that date during the time of Christ. So probably... Jesus' dad was a craftsman, as some people translate that Greek word there, not carpenter, but more like stonemason or, you know, or, or a, a craftsman. And if that was the case, you know, Jesus, in either way, either case, grew up knowing how to work with his hands, understanding the, the concerns uh, and the plight of maybe the so-called common person. Um, Jesus was a man that I'm convinced, knew about daily life and, and how people uh, you know, were concerned about the rearing of their children and what it meant to work with their hands. This was a, a man that was not just someone that if you sort of blew on him, he'd fall over. You know, there's some pictures that people paint to Jesus today that look very European, and he's got long blonde hair, and he's usually got blue eyes. That's nothing like really Jesus, I'm sure, didn't look anything like that. In fact, Isaiah tells us in chapter 53 that he's like a root out of a dry ground. I haven't seen very many pretty roots out of dry grounds before. Jesus was probably an ordinary-looking Jew with hair cropped short, black hair, uh, dark eyes, and probably, again, calloused hands and a man that knew what it was like to work. His parents brought him to Jerusalem to be presented at the temple as the required Jewish family was to do, and we know that according to Luke 2, verse 41, and we have evidence of what that temple looks like today based on the archaeological record, the writing of Josephus, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow night. Well, uh, the temple was quite a sophisticated building and one that uh, must have created a lot of awe as the disciples spoke about when they saw the buildings of the temple and were in awe of it. Imagine Jesus' parents coming here and coming to those steps that you can see there just beyond those big, tall, uh, menorah-looking light stands and bringing then their child as then maybe Joseph would have went further inside to the court of the Israelites to uh, receive a blessing from the priest and to make their sacrifice for their son. So we go from the, the birth of Christ to the early infancy. The Bible doesn't mention a whole lot about those early years other than uh, Jesus at the age of 12 being brought here to the temple. And, and uh, remember the story? His parents go home and they, they can't find Jesus. And, and his dad comes back and he finds him talking with the, the elders. Uh, uh, probably right in here somewhere, the Hall of Hewn Stone was located Again, we don't know exactly where that took place, but the infancy years, the adolescent years of Jesus, but then the Bible jumps right into telling us about the years of preparation, the years when, or the time when John the baptizer came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time when 
according to what Isaiah 40 spoke about and was fulfilled of a voice crying in the wilderness. The Bible in introducing us to these first six months of Jesus' life before he begins his public preaching spends a lot of time talking about that ministry in the desert, in the wilderness area. In fact, that wilderness area most likely where he spent a lot of time, and we do know where part of it was, is right here in this narrow strip of land about 55 miles long and about 11 miles wide that's wedged between the Dead Sea and the Judean hill country that's known as the wilderness of Judea. Now, sometimes people, when they hear that, and they think, well, wow, and look at these pictures, they go, why would anybody go out there to be baptized? Uh, Maybe the Bible's not right. Uh, Maybe the baptism wasn't really an immersion at all. Maybe it was just sprinkling or something. You ever hear arguments uh, associated with that? Uh, John came out here preaching in the wilderness. Maybe Jesus was brought to a cave like this one, the cave number four where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered that uh, I spoke about briefly on Sunday and a very important discovery out there. This is a barren place, dry and inhospitable. And so the question arises, well, is there enough water? Is there water out there to be baptized? Let me tell you a story. Now, when I say a story, I mean something that's true. I'm not talking about a fable. The first time I ever went to Israel, I was with my brother, and we had enrolled in a class at Jerusalem University, and we were with a bunch of other students, and one of the guys that had enrolled in the class was a professor at a denominational school in Alabama. And as we're sitting around the breakfast table one morning, eating some of those cucumbers, remember I told you about that? Eating some cucumbers and eggs and whatever else was out there. Ken, as his name is, Dr. Ken, looks across the table and he says, John, are you a dipper or are you a plunger? Well, I knew he wasn't talking about plumbing terms. I said, well, if you're talking about baptism, the Bible teaches it's by immersion. We're buried into Christ, Colossians 2.12. And he says, oh, yeah, that's what, you know, you guys, you know, over here in the West think. He was actually from Ireland originally. And, and he said, that's what you guys are in America think, that, you know, that the Jordan River is this mighty Mississippi River. And he goes, the Jordan River is not nearly as big as everybody thinks it is. In fact, he said, it's like a trickle down there. Well, I said, you know, Ken, I've, I've never been uh, to the Jordan River uh, yet at that point, uh, but I've seen pictures, and it seems like to me that there's enough water. And he goes, well, yeah, there is up at a place called Yardent, just south of the Sea of Galilee. He said there they, the tourist board dug out a, a huge place and diverted the waters over there. And that's where people go to be baptized. And you know he's right. That's not really the Jordan River. Water's diverted from the Jordan River over there. But this is a special place that uh, was created by the tourist board. And tourists go there to be baptized in Israel. See, they believe there's something special uh, about that. And I said, well, Ken, now look, that may be true. But I've seen pictures, and there's enough water in the Jordan River to be baptized. It doesn't take a whole lot of water to immerse somebody. Just ask Jack, right? In a 55-gallon drum, he baptized somebody in India or somebody, one of the members there. Well, what we need to know is that many many places exist that are deep enough to immerse in the wilderness. It doesn't take a whole lot of water, but I'm telling you, there's a whole lot more water than people realize out in the Judean wilderness. Here is the spring of En Gedi. That looks plenty deep enough to me. And that's just one among many of the springs that are found, little oases, scattered around the Judean wilderness. In Bible times, this wilderness area was known as a place of refuge. The Sinai wilderness, where the children of Israel wandered for 40 years, was known as a place of death. But this place was known as a place of refuge. Yes, largely uninhabitable, 
But there are places, if you know where the water sources are, you can go and find refreshment. And not only that, but it is true that today the Jordan River is reduced to not much than something wider than between here and here in a lot of places. It is the border from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea between the country of Jordan and Israel today. And it is very, very small in a lot of places, especially in times of drought. And it's quite disappointing as people are excited to go down there and see it. But you know what's happening that wasn't happening 2,000 years ago? Farmers are irrigating. Jordan is getting a lot of its water from the Jordan River. And also, there just happens to be a dam built, and that's not the dam there. I just had to find a picture of a dam, and I couldn't find that one that I needed. But there is a dam built at the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. So the water is being held back. Farmers are irrigating all up and down it, and there's not much water. I'm telling you that to say that when you read in the Bible about people going out to the wilderness and they're baptizing, there were places you could trust the Bible. But sometimes we look at the Bible through our 21st century glasses or through some subjective sort of feeling that we may have or a bias or prejudice that we may have, like my friend Ken had. Oh, we did eventually cross over the Jordan River a few days later over near the Alamy Bridge, uh, a little further down uh, right here. And uh, I, I was quick to point out to Ken, this is a little, it looks like enough water to baptize somebody to there. And he, he kind of ducked his head as he knew that he wasn't accurate and correct. Well, there are places. Here is a place near Beit Abara, not too far from Jericho, uh, that has become quite popular now for people to go to. And if you want to find a spot where Jesus was probably baptized, I would say it's in this stretch right along here. It makes sense with the, with the, uh, you know, the, di- or the, the things that are revealed in Scripture about uh, where all he went and the places that existed there. So uh, maybe that'll give you an idea where Jesus was baptized. The point is, is that he obeyed the commands of God when he, John, saw him, said, I need to be baptized of you. But Jesus said, suffer it to be so that we may fulfill all righteousness. Jesus obeyed the commands of God, and I call upon our friends everywhere to do the same thing, to follow the example of Jesus and obey his commands and be baptized for the remission of your sins. So the years of preparation in the wilderness of John the baptizer, the baptism of Jesus, and the temptation of Jesus that took place out there. But now, what about his Galilean ministry? Because after Jesus endured those temptations, after he was out in the wilderness, suddenly in Matthew chapter 4, we burst onto the scene of Jesus becoming public with his teaching and his preaching. And it says this in Matthew 4, 23, and verse 17 and 23, that Jesus went about all of their uh, villages and their cities preaching in their synagogues the gospel of the kingdom. He went to Capernaum and made his home there. And when he was around the Sea of Galilee, right up here in the north, a sea that is about 13 and a half miles long and about seven and a half miles wide, made up of fresh water called a sea because that's what ancient geographers called a large body of water. And there Jesus began his public ministry at that very place. You're looking at the plains of Gennesaret right down below there. Picture taken from a place called Mount Arbel. The Bible doesn't mention it. I kind of think it's a likely site for maybe the Mount the Sermon on the Mount mentioned in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But that sea, remember it in just a moment, was a place that could easily erupt with a storm. The Jordan River here in the north flows in to that sea. And not far from that particular spot right there where this drone footage is taken, there is an archaeological dig going on where they believe they have found the fishing village of Bethsaida. And... Uh, 
could very well be it. Here is the Sea of Galilee from looking at Mount Arbel and right at the base, right near the base of that mountain. An ancient Jewish village from the first century was found. Now, there are a lot of synagogues, old synagogues all around this area. But most of them are from the 4th, 5th century A.D. There are now seven synagogues that have been found from the 1st century. And I mention that. You need to know it because a number of years ago, I read an article about a critic who said the Bible, again, uses an anachronism. That the guys that were writing the Bible just spoke of something that really didn't exist at their time and that the Bible was written much later. There were synagogues in their, uh, in their mind and, and they saw it in the 4th and 5th century. And so when they wrote about Jesus going to a synagogue, they, they said it was a, kind of pictured as a physical place. But you know what? 1st century synagogues have been discovered in the last 10 or 15 years and one of them right here at a place called Magdala. Could be the place where Mary Magdalene was from. And they dug up this first century synagogue, elaborately decorated. Nobody doubts that that's a first century synagogue. Jesus went about all of their cities preaching and teaching. If you want to go to a place where Jesus probably stood, that's it. Because he preached in this area and most likely taught there. And right beside it, guess what, is a mikvah. A number of these. We'll talk more about this tomorrow. The Jews ritualistically immersed themselves before they went to the synagogue, before they went up to the temple. There were a number of baptistries located in different places all around Israel. They were being built, some of them as many as 200 A.D. before the time of Christ. I mean 200 B.C. before the time of Christ now. Baptistries everywhere. Jesus came here, made Capernaum his home, and guess what is there? As you go along the seashore, there is a synagogue. That one's a 4th century, 5th century A.D. synagogue. But it is sitting... Oh, by the way, that's not a spaceship over there, if you're wondering. Uh, Everybody thinks it is. It's actually sitting over the top of what some people believe to be Peter's home. Don't know if it's Peter's home, but it was uh, a area in a residence that the walls had been moved out. They found Christian symbols like a fish and a cross and so forth written on the walls in there in this small residential area, but a larger place existed. And they've identified it as Peter's home. Well, don't know that it is, but it's been enshrined now. But what is important is that there was a synagogue here built on a first century foundation. And then you know what else they found here? Look at that. Millstones. The basalt rock in this area, volcanic rock, is really hard. It makes for a great grinding stone. Capernaum was known for the number of stones that they had. People would often come here and use them in a communal setting, or they could purchase one there. They found numerous ones. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 17? Sin is going to come, but woe to that person through whom it comes. It's better that a millstone be tied about your neck and cast into the depths of the sea. Now, that picture I just showed you was right in Capernaum in the old city. You turn right around and you walk about 10 yards and you can stand right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I think there was a visual impact that resonated with those people. Sin is serious. Not only is sin serious, but when we cause others to sin, Jesus said, it's better that a millstone be tied about your neck and cast into that 144-foot deep sea. We all need to remember tonight that sin has terrible consequences. And that's one of the great things, this teaching about the ethics found in Scripture is that it reminds us that not only are we to be right with God, but we are to be right with our fellow man. That we have an obligation and responsibility to treat them with respect and love and to not sin against them. So, great lessons and messages found 
in this area where these homes were located. Um, you know what else took place in this community? Right here in this little area? The Bible tells us about Jesus being in a home. And there were so many guests and, and that were there trying to listen to what he was saying. And, and uh, four men that were carrying a, a man that couldn't, couldn't walk, couldn't get inside. And so they went up to the roof and they began to tear it apart. And, you know, those roofs could be torn apart. Can you imagine Jesus sitting in that house and his men, uh, four men, letting down that paralyzed man in front of him and Jesus saying, your sins be forgiven you. People being aghast at what it, who can forgive sins but, but God. That's right. Jesus is God. And whether it is easier for me to say, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee, or take up thy bed and walk, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. Jesus performed miracles. He taught great lessons to the poor, to the blind, to those who could not walk. He cared about everyone. In fact, his ministry began by going to his hometown in Nazareth and reading uh, from Isaiah, the prophet, about what would take place when his work began. The blind would see, the brokenhearted would be healed. Jesus preached lessons around this area like the great Sermon on the Mount, taught people about loving their neighbor, about being pure in heart, about truly walking uh, in a way that's acceptable to him, to not walk in a broad way, but to walk in the, in the narrow way that leads to life. These are some of the places where Jesus taught that great sermon. Just down the road from Capernaum, there is this little natural cove. And many people identified as a, a great location for fishermen to bring their boats and to mend their nets. Not only because of the harbor, but if you were to go there today and sit on the shore and then have someone stand as we did right up in here, First time I went before these trees were here, and someone reads, they can easily hear what's being said. It's a natural amphitheater. Not only because of the of the, the shape of the land, but the winds blowing someone's voice off the Sea of Galilee right up into that crowd. Because of that, a lot of people have identified this as the cove of the sower where Jesus taught the parable about the man who went forth to sow seed and some fell among the thorns and some fell into good soil and so forth. What's interesting to me, again, is that these places exist, that they are consistent with the story. And here is that picture I was telling you about of sitting there. Can you imagine thousands and thousands of people gathered there, pressing on Jesus to hear him. And then what happens? He gets in a boat and pushes away just a little bit from the shore, and he continues to preach. Now, contrary to what some people think, preaching is, is hard work. And sometimes you can get a little sleepy and tired. I know you can as the audience, but sometimes the preacher can too as well. And after Jesus had preached there on that shoreline, the Bible says that they set sail across to go to the place of the Gadarenes. And as they set sail across, and there is, by the way, just a, a little bit of a drone footage of that area of the Sea of Galilee, it was evening. And Jesus fell a, asleep 
in the hinder part or in the back part of the boat. And as was, could happen from time to time, a storm quickly erupted on the Sea of Galilee. Do you know how deep the Sea of Galilee is? I know I told you it's 144 foot deep, but I'm talking about the surface. It is 695 feet below sea level. Everybody knows the Dead Sea is below sea level, but the Sea of Galilee is as well. And it's surrounded by this sort of coliseum of hills. And if you look to the north, there is a slight opening that goes up eventually through the Gila Basin up to Mount Hermon that sits at about 9,700 feet above sea level. And sometimes the wind off of Mount Hermon can come down into that Gila Basin and then get pushed into that small wedge, sort of like a, a natural wind tunnel, and come bursting out on the Sea of Galilee. They set sail across, no doubt, when things were fine, thinking we'll have no problem getting across there, but suddenly a storm erupted. I would imagine they were pretty afraid in a little boat like this. We know that that boat that Jesus was in was probably about that size. Josephus tells us that there were boats around the Sea of Galilee where about 10 to 12 men could sit in. But we know even more specifically because of what was discovered about 20 years ago in the mud of the Sea of Galilee during a period of drought. A local man and his son were walking along the shoreline and they saw sticking out of the mud some wood and they began to dig and they found a boat that then a team of archaeologists and others who came to preserve it worked on for days and finally lifted it out of there, encased it in foam for a while, brought it down to a, a museum that they later had built called the Yagan uh, Alon Museum. And now that boat, having been preserved, is called the Jesus boat. We don't know if Jesus was in it, but it is a boat, and no one disagrees, that came from the first century. A boat that many people believe was a fisherman's boat. I would imagine it was fairly harrowing to sit and be in a boat like that out on that ocean when the storms would arise. But remember what happened? They awakened Jesus. And they said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? How can you lie asleep? And Jesus said, Oh, you little faith. And he rebuked the wind. The wind ceased and the water stopped. Those waves stopped. And they looked and they were astonished. And they say, What manner of man was this, or is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now Mark and other writers tell of this event to remind us of the power and the authority that Jesus had not only over the demonic world and the world of disease, but over the natural world of storms. But there's something I want to finish with tonight about this story. Is that these accounts tell us not only about a very unique man who was more than a man, he was the man God. But it also reminds us of the things that we face in life and the storms that we sometimes have. Jesus can calm those. Aren't we like the disciples sometimes that get in our boat, we sail across sort of the, the lake of life, and things are, are calm. But like the storm on the Sea of Galilee that suddenly came out of nowhere, so a storm can arise in our own life, can seemingly come out of nowhere. And maybe in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of that turmoil in our life, we feel like our boat is beginning to sink. And maybe we're like the disciples and we cry out and we say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? You know, the Lord does care. He cares about everything that you struggle with. He cares about all the things that you face. And it is in the midst of all of that that we must not let the physical world around us prevent us from remembering the words of Christ.
and the peace that can be found in those words. If Jesus could rebuke the wind on the Sea of Galilee and cause it to stop as he did, don't you think he can cause the storms to stop or that we can endure them and we can make our way through it by listening to the power of his word? The sword of the Spirit is the word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. And the word of God is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the very thought and intent of our heart. God's word can produce faith in us, Romans 10, verse 17. It is the means by which we are born again, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. It can cleanse our heart, John chapter 15. It can build us up and give us an inheritance among all them that are sanctified, Acts 20, verse 28. Oh, as the psalmist said, how I love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day because it will help you. Do you trust in it? You know why you can trust in it? Because the man who gave it, the Holy Spirit that revealed it, our Heavenly Father who sent that Spirit to guide these apostles into all the truth has given us a message that we can have confidence in that's rooted in history, in geography, to know. The promises made here can also be trusted. I hope that you are trusting God tonight. And if you're not, and you're going through maybe a storm in your life or some problem, especially if the storm is sin, why don't you let Jesus quell that storm tonight? By confessing your sin, if you're not a Christian, and then being baptized for the remission of your sins, if you are a Christian, being restored to Christ. Whatever your need may be, will you come as together we stand and as we sing?